It's good to have everybody here this morning, uh, everybody except our brother Luke. Let's continue to remember him in prayer, but uh, Dustin, it's good to have you here. We've been praying for you, Tom. We've been praying for you guys not being able to be here. Uh, uh, even though you guys are new, it still leaves a hole. It leaves a hole. So uh, let's continue in the book of John this morning. Uh, as we work through this book, it's going to take us a little while, okay? Uh, just know that. We're going to be in this... Because we've got Advent coming up, and we're going to shift gears there to get into Advent. That's going to take us right up into Epiphany, and then we're going to get back into John, and then we're going to be back, hopefully be finishing out John right before Easter, so then we can get into the Easter and then to Pentecost. And uh, So we're going to be in the book of John for quite some time. So please do not get discouraged because you're not hearing these uh, you know, great and wonderful things being preached by R.C. Sproul. Uh, if you want that, you got to go online for that. So that's good. Uh, it's good that we have that access and technology. But we're continuing this morning uh, in the book. And what we're doing, what your elders are doing, is giving you the high-level overview of this book. Um, a little bit down in the weeds sometimes. Sometimes we're going to get very deep and we're going to draw from the depths of the well. And other times, you're just going to have to go to the internet or to books to get something a little more deep, and we might just be hitting things. So today is an idea of getting down into the weeds. We're going to be doing uh, essentially a, a word study, but uh, it's going to be from a section of scripture. Uh, but we're going to be getting a little bit deeper here. And the reason why we're doing this here, because Proverbs 25.2 says that it is the glory of God to conceal a matter and then the honor of kings to search that out, right? So today my sermon title is The Painter Whose Brush Was Himself. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for this opportunity this morning that we can come and hear your words. Lord, I pray that it would be applicable to our lives, Lord, to our situations. Lord, we don't want to just speak words. No one wants to just warm up the room with their breath. Lord, we want these words to speak life into our heart to our scenarios and situations in life. There are many scenarios that we are all going through, some more complex than others, but in the moment, each one seems complex to ourselves. Pray this, Lord, in Jesus' name, amen. If you could stand with me for the reading of God's Word in John chapter 1, going from verse 10 to verse 14, it says that He was in the world, and the world was made by him, and the world knew him not. He came unto his own, and his own received him not. But as many as received him, he gave them the power to become the sons of God, even them that believe on his name, which were born not of blood, nor of the will of flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. And the word was made flesh, and dwelt among us. And we beheld his glory, and the glory, as of the only begotten Son of the Father, full of grace and truth. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You may be seated. So last week, Elder Ratliff unpacked who the man John the Baptist was for us. Okay? One of the most notable things that I remember was this cosmic Excel spreadsheet. The eye of man cannot behold the glories of God, and it's unless he has been regenerated and we know through this Excel spreadsheet that there is something that's always on the back end. There's programming always on the back end that we can't see that's there. That when we input, for those who don't know what Excel is, when you input something into a cell, 
it populates an answer somewhere for you. And you can do lots and many things with it. Bookkeepers understand this very well. So the eye of man cannot behold the glories of God unless he's been generated. But all throughout history, the eye of man has been blind to the background of the present moment. The eyes behold what the Lord allows it to see. And there is always sometimes something greater going on in the background of your situation. So we have situations, but there's something even greater going on in the background that's making your situation happen. So John's message is that the eternal God has become man and that you should believe on him to be saved. That's where we get those that believe on his name. Will be, those that believe on him will have the benefit of being called the sons of God. We should be believing on his name so that we would be saved. The Gospel of John, this book of John, is unlike all of the other three Gospels. We have four Gospels, but the three Gospels specifically speak of many things that are unified throughout the Gospels. John doesn't talk about 90% of the things that gone on in the other Gospels he doesn't address. So John's book is specifically an evangelistic book. He's trying to get us to understand who God is, who the Son of God is, that we should believe on him so that we would have everlasting life. This is the purpose of it. The first three books are more historical about Christ, his life, his ministry, those things that went on, his miracles. John doesn't touch the miracles. John doesn't touch the ascension. He doesn't touch the baptism. He doesn't talk anything about it. He goes right into the heart of the matter for you to then believe on God. Then we can go read those other things about his life. So John is going to break down, not only for us, but for the people of his day, something very specific for, him to under, for them to understand. In John chapter 20, it says, But these were written that you might believe that Jesus is the Son of God, and that believing you might have life through his name. So right there in John 20, 31, it does say the purpose of John's message to the people. The essential truth of Christian faith. God became man to save them. It's the whole book. God became man to save them. The three prior Gospels, all of the events that went on there, John isn't discussing. John's going into a very specific phraseology. God became man to save you people, me, you, all of us, all throughout history. This is the most heavenly gospel by far. It's even talked about in the phrase, the holy of holies of gospel. This particular book, John, is not the most important of the four, but it is very crucial to get people to understand who Christ is so that you would even want to read the other three or any of it. So, the purpose is to expose the true person of Christ. It's only when we understand who Christ is and who he really is that we understand his person and his work, then there is any possibility for anyone to be saved. You must first believe that he is who he is. And foremost, before salvation can be offered to anyone, if this is widely accepted to be an evangelistic gospel, what purpose is it for those who have bowed their knee to the Most High? How do we apply it? Right? We don't throw the book of John out because we've all been saved and we all understand who Christ is and we live by Christian principles. 
So we don't just toss out the book of John because this is just for the unbeliever, because it's not. It's for us as believers to understand some very nuanced points. There are things in the book of John that are so much more powerful than you're going to find in the other three Gospels. And I'm going to be explaining one of them this morning. So this morning I want to do your four-point Presbyterian presentation here. Your first point is what that word was. We spoke about in, in the top portion here when we spoke about John, John chapter 1 verse 10. It says that he was in the world and the world was made by him. What are we saying he? Raise your hand if you think it's Jesus. Class participation. Raise your hand if you think this was Jesus they're speaking of. Okay. Okay. You're wrong. And I'm going to explain to you why. Okay. I'm going to explain to you why. So there's this transformer effect that happens. And it does. And you will understand why it's Jesus. But we're not talking about Jesus. We're talking about very specifically the nuance, the second person of the Godhead. Okay. The word. And we're going to explain what that is. So. What that word was. Second, the world was fashioned by that word. What that word was, by that word. Third, what happens after the word has accomplished its goal? And the fourth and final point that I'm going to address is how that word still creates today. First, let's dig into what that word was. So that word, say it with me, logos. Okay. okay, this is a Greek word. It's a noun. It occurs 330 times in the Greek New Testament. It is the most basic and common understanding, simply meaning speech or utterance. Okay. This word goes back to the first chapter and verse of Genesis. We're going back to an ancient history, a language unknown at this point. So John is addressing it in Greek. But this language from where this word came from is predates any language. This is before even Hebrew. This is the word and the speech of God. The Godhead uttering words when he said, let there be light, what would that have sound like? It wasn't in English, it wasn't Swahili, and it wasn't Hebrew. So this word goes back there, but John's tapping into this word logos because this is their understanding of what logos meant. When God said, it was those words that came out of his mouth that generated all of creation. And after God said, let there be light, then there was life. Okay. The Logos pre-existed all of creation. It has always been there. Even though it was, even though it created, excuse me, even though it created, it itself was not created. There is a continuation of ancient Jewish thought in wisdom writings and in literature, as well as in the Greek sphere. The Greek word, even though it was different in pronunciation, meant the same thing. So, I could liken it today, we all know what a cat is, right? When I say cat, image comes to your head, your crazy cat that runs around, chases a ball, you got an idea of what a cat is, right? Cats don't change no matter what part of the world they're from. Now, if I'm in Spain, which is very far from Harrisburg, Ohio, and I say gato, every person who understands Spanish understands what a cat is. 
So even though the word is different, it's the same exact understanding of what that is. So John is addressing a Greek word here in the New Testament. I'll give it to you for you guys to see it here on the left after the Old Testament. But it goes all the way back to Genesis 1.1, predating any language of what that understanding of what the Logos was. So Greeks understood what Logos was. Hebrews understood what Logos was. Even though they wouldn't say that word, they would call it something else. Okay? There is a common theme here that God is sending his wisdom into the world throughout all of the Old Covenant and other ancient Jewish and Christian writings, such as the Wisdom of Solomon, which is a book. You're going to find these in the Apocryphal books. The Book of Barak and the Book of Enoch. That's not Barack Obama, by the way. <laughs> the Book of Enoch. These are apoc apocryphal readings. We don't really get into them anymore. They were exited the scripture as we know it uh, in the late 1800s. Uh, and there's reasons why. We can get into all that. But for a very long time, the Christians would read the books of the Apocrypha. And it helped understand the scriptures that we have today. So we understand that the wisdom is the speech that's uttered out of the mouth of God. In, pre uh, in pre Proverbs chapter 104, verse 24, it says that wisdom has made all things. So how can it say that wisdom has made all things if we just understood that Logos made everything? Well, because the Logos is the word, the speech that came out of God's mouth that is wisdom. God only speaks wisdom. Okay? These writings would carry an understanding that as wisdom is spoken of, and it's a feminine noun, wisdom is concerned as a woman. We see throughout Proverbs, it speaks of wisdom. Proverbs 1.1 1, 1, uh, speaks of how wisdom teaches the children. Okay? We know that wisdom in and of itself is not a woman, but the word is spoken of in a feminine noun sense. But logos is in a masculine sound sense. So we see the Greek word here is a man, Logos coming to dwell with a men. Okay. And we beheld his glory. It was most it was the most accurate way to convey the truest form of the deity to the Jewish people and the Greek people of that day. He first reaches into the most ancient of times, a time before any word had ever even been spoken. John then uses this commonly understood phrase to get his audience to make the connection that the Logos was God and that the Logos became man in verse 14. Very specifically, the only begotten. And this is why we say Jesus. Jesus had not yet been created. Jesus was the fleshly man. It was the only begotten. But we also have to see that in that establishment of it being the only begotten, it is speaking of Jesus. And we see that because Jesus was the prophecy, and then the prophecy was fulfilled, and we have historical proof that a man, Jesus, did these things. So, we later find out that the Logos is, as we've been learning in the Chalcedonian Creed, which I will say is difficult for us. It's a bit of a tongue twister at times. It's kind of hard to get through because... We're used to the Apostles' Creed and the Nicene Creed. It flows a little easier. This one's a little choppier. But your education, your wisdom that you receive, isn't just supposed to come to you in pretty packets of poetry. 
you just have to know some stuff sometimes, even if it's hard to chew through it. Okay? So it establishes that it's the second person of the Godhead, the uncreated, coming to be created in the form of what we later know as Jesus. So lofty of a position to come so low into the form of a man. And for the first 30 years, the fullness of the Godhead dwelt within the person of Jesus, and people didn't <coughs> understand it. They received him not. So the sermon that John preached was intended to turn the light bulb on for people. At this point in his sermon, when he was talking this, when they were transcribing it, men and women listening would have gasped when he used the word logos. They would have started grumbling some, perhaps, most likely, some would have started weeping because of their conviction that they have just been understanding that they just put the Christ to death. So, here, we're going to understand who this painter is, whose brush was himself. So I got a little visual aid here. I'm going to go through it. And I hope everybody can see it. I know that you won't see, you'll see this, you won't read it, but you'll see this. Um, please come by later and, and look more intently with it. Uh, I'm, I'm going to develop this a little bit more and I'm going to break it out. What this word is and what it means and the words within words. And in English, we don't really do this, but in Hebrew, it's a vastly different system. We're Western thought, everything is concrete. Everything is, when you go outside, and I'm sorry, we are very abstract. We're going to go outside and say, oh, what a nice day. What is nice? It's arbitrary. What's nice for you isn't nice for me. In Hebrew, they would go outside and say, oh, the sun shines warmly upon my face. It's a more concrete language. So they speak with concrete. And in their words, this is just one word. This word is beginning. So we're going back to the very first, the very, very first word. In the beginning, very specifically, this is what it is, and it is bare sheet. Hey, I had to do this because there's no way I could remember how to chunk it all out without messing it up. It's hard enough not to mess it up when I'm reading it. So, bear with me here. It's a little bit different style of sermon for you guys, okay? So, this is the Hebrew word for in the beginning. It's the very, very first word of Genesis chapter 1. The very first word. And it's called Bereshit. Bereshit means in the beginning. The isn't there. It's implied later in 18, uh, late 1800s. Uh, German scholars said, let's add some uh, a better way of us to understand Hebrew. So it actually means in beginning. So this is Bereshit. And it's made up, now Hebrew you read from right to left. So we have the first letter of the bait, Aresh, Aleph, Shin, Yod, and Tav. Just like we make up our words with individual letters. Okay? Within this word is broken out to have multiple words. This first letter the first letter, bait, means a tent. The second letter means chief or head, which or prince, which is commonly understood when you put these two words to get these two letters together. It actually says the word bar, which means son. Okay, 
when you take the resh, well, let's just go here. So we got 10, we got resh, which is chief and head. This is meaning God. So this guy is God. This is the Aleph. This is where we get the alphabet, is the Aleph Bet. This is how we get our alphabet today. These are the first two letters of their alphabet. So this is a silent word, it's a silent letter. It means God. Okay? This one over here means destruction. This is the Shin, it means destruction. Yud means hand, a hand. And the last letter means cross or covenant. So I'm just going to put cub here. Put hand. And this is destruction. I'm just going to shorten that up. And this guy here is, uh, he was the, the head. So, this is tent. We're just going to do a tent instead of writing it out. Okay? It's hard to multitask with hands and markers and um, my friend here. I'll keep that up there. So then we're going to come to the second. So already we have, in one word, we have the Son of God is destroyed by his own hand for the covenant. The beginning. Okay? Within this word, there are multiple words, like we just saw with Bet and Resh. Together means bar. You would say bar, which means son. Okay? The next word within this word is rosh. And that's from sin to resh. Okay? So we have words within a word. And that word within the word means head. This is why I know some of you can't really see back there, but uh, when you get a chance, come forward. So rosh means head. The next word that's in there is uh, from Shin to Tav. This means thorns. Has anybody ever used the uh, Strong's Concordance? Okay, so all of these words, they all have Strong's Concordance numbers. This here is H79. 7989, I believe it is. But I can confirm all that. This sounds like hocus pocusy, but you know, we could definitely have a conversation after, and now is not time for that. But I can give you all of the Hebrew words from Strong's Concordance, how these all break down within this word. So we have already Son, God, destroyed by his own head, hand for the covenant. We have head and thorns in here, covenant on the end. Um, now we also have another word here which is the shin. I'm trying to give you some extra lines here to see. And now this guy meant the gift. Okay? That's the gift. So the, four, the fifth and final word here we have from baked to shin. I think some of you guys are already seeing where this is going here. This last word here, berosh, means tree. Okay. The first word in the beginning of the Bible, the very first word God comes out of his mouth with, bereshit, in beginning. In the beginning, from the very beginning, 
gives me goosebumps even with that. In the beginning, the Son of God was already planned out to be destroyed by his own hand for the covenant, where he will have thorns placed upon his head, placed on hung on a tree for a gift of the covenant. So the very, very first word in all of Hebrew literature, and the very first word that God wants us to understand is that he had this logos. He had Christ in mind in the beginning of everything. Everything was established. Everything points back to Christ. That's the first, first part. That's, that's the logos. Before there was a Jesus who came from a Mary, who was told of by, by the angel, this already existed in ancient Hebrew literature for close to 4,000 years before John ever spoke. In the beginning, there was this word, and this word became flesh and dwelt with men, and men did not receive him. So he wasn't just talking to the Greeks by using the word logos. He was talking about a concept that went way back. <coughs> Secondly, this world, everything that we see, was made by this Logos. Okay? It's common to say Jesus made the world. Uh, that, is the, that is theologically incorrect to say that. Because Jesus didn't. The second person of the Trinity did. The Logos did. Jesus is the name for the flesh. But there's prophetic meaning in Jesus. Right? We see even in the Christmas story with God with us. Right? Emmanuel. John wanted to drive home the point that everything that was made by that logo slash Christ, because Christ was a title, the Christ, in Colossians 1, 5, uh, sorry, in 1, 15 through 17, he is the image of the invisible God, the first of all of creation. For by him all things were created in the heavens and in the earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rules, rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. And therefore all things, before all things, and in him all things hold together. And in Hebrews chapter 1 verse 2 it says, Long ago in many times and in many ways God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days he has spoken to us by his son, whom he has appointed to be heir of all things through whom also he created the world. So, ancient, before man, before speech, before light, Jesus was already on the scene, pictured metaphorically for the future, even more so than metaphorically. He was in the mind of God long before he had a name. The second pre-existent person of God created the world and all that's in it by the use of his speech, the logos, the word. And, and through all of these words, everything came out. This is why we can say that Jesus made all things. It's not the man, the dual nature we've been learning in the Chalcedonian Creed. It's not the inseparable thing. It is the essence of his deity that later became man, that was later named Jesus by Michael, the archangel. With Trinitarianism comes nuance. It's hard to understand Trinitarianism. Harder still is to convey Trinitarianism. 
you can often sound very heretical if you're trying to break it down for somebody who doesn't understand it. Because it's hard to wrap our heads around this heavenly being, this outside of our sphere and understanding, it's not man. God is not man. We have to wrap our head around this idea of this extraterrestrial thing. And so it's hard for us to understand. But if we're not laser focused on it, it's going to sound wrong. So, it's easy to get tripped up in the portions of Scripture. So we have God, the Father, we have the Logos, or the second person of the Trinity, and then we got the Holy Spirit. But then the Logos takes on human form in the person of Jesus. We are certainly not saying that there's four persons here. The Trinity is that Trinity, try three, three only. So the, the second person embodied, poured himself into the body of Christ, Jesus specifically, Christ this title, but Jesus was his name. <coughs> this then completed the thought for God. However, it is okay to say that the world was created by Jesus because this is how we understand it. But let us think grander than just words. Let us think and understand what we're saying when we say it. Thirdly, what happens after the word has accomplished its goal. So, Genesis, what was the goal of the word at that point? What was the goal of the word in Genesis? The Logos. To create. Okay. I know you guys aren't Pentecostal, but you can talk. (laughs) You can talk back. (laughs) Not like my kids do, though. Sophia. So at this time, when creation was going on, the world was illuminated. That means that things were brought to light. Not only because there was a sun that now sits in the sky, but it was because everything that was new was revealed to another. Imagine, if you will, you are a large flying pterodactyl. That's what you guys are this morning, okay? Pterodactyls. Soaring above the plains. Does everybody know what a pterodactyl is? This is one of those situations where I expected more out of that answer, like uh, more chuckles, like I'm a pterodactyl. Ha, ha, ha. <laughs> you are a pterodactyl, and you're flying above the plains on day five. Everything's beautiful. All the landscape is wonderful. You're seeing it for the first time because you were just spoken into existence. You can land wherever you want. You can soar as high as you want. You can go wherever you want because you can fly and everything is beautiful, but then you get tired and you go to sleep and you wake up on day six and it's a whole new world for you. Everything is now being revealed to you. There are now beasts in the field that weren't there yesterday. You can't just land wherever you want. There's going to be something happening in that space. It's new. Then there's this strange furless thing that walks upright on two legs and he walks with God in the garden. What is that thing? Everything and every day after that appears new. Not because it's being created new, but because it's being revealed new. You, the pterodactyl, can soar further now. You can go out further than you did a day ago because you have more time. And you can hop. 
And you can go from place to place to place to place. And everything that you see is going to become new. You just saw an elephant. You didn't see that before. That's being revealed to you. So there's a great deal of revelation going on for early creation. Every day is something new. This is the concept that we should have in Christ. The Bible says that we are to renew our mind every day. And when our mind is renewed every day, we're seeing new things in Scripture. They're not new. They're not new concepts. Solomon says there's nothing new under the sun. These are just new to you, new to me, right? This is how our knowledge in Christ needs to be. We need to be having more and more of these aha moments. Even this morning, you may have learned something new. Maybe you already knew that. This has been illuminated to you. This has now been revealed to you. You have, not, you have now received revelation. The Bible tells us to renew our minds in Romans 12 too, right? So let's renew every day. Something happened to me two weeks ago. And first, let me just tell you, at, maybe if you guys are coming to the uh, picnic that we're going to have in the park, uh, give me a side and, and I'll tell you the story about the day I uh, discovered a new creature. Okay. That was a very exciting day for me. My professors were baffled too. So, but renewing your mind. So this happened to me two weeks ago, not the new creature thing, but that was before. I told Sam this story. This happened to me a few years back. Oh, sorry, that happened to me a few years back. This happened to me just two weeks ago. Listening to a sermon, um, 47 years old, I've been in Christ for a long time, I've been diligently searching scripture, and I've heard come across the pulpit numerous times, come across in conversation numerous times, understood that, that set of scriptures pretty specifically uh, one way. Right? And it wasn't something I think about every day, it was just conversationally, we would talk about it, and that was my understanding. So I'm listening to a teaching on postmillennialism by Dr. Greg Monson. And I had only heard of the scripture in one context in the past, that it was done in a defensive role. That's the church. The church is in a defensive role. We are the church of Christ. And because of that, we have Christ on our side. And when the gates of hell come against us, gates of hell come against us, shall not prevail against us. For we're, we are a strong fortress. Matthew 16, 18 tells us that. When we read it in an accurate context, it says that the church is militant and that when we go out against the enemy, his gates won't prevail against us going in and we'll push through. <coughs> Blew my mind. I'm like, wait a minute. This isn't us hunkering down into the corner of the back of the fort going, I know Jesus is going to save us. I know he can protect us. But thankfully, our gates are going to hold up no matter what the enemy does. The scripture doesn't say that. The scripture says that the gates of hell will not prevail against you. They will not last when you go and kill that enemy. When you go against the enemy, you will push through 
and his gates will not withstand our force. That's a whole different mindset, is it not? This is a whole different way of thinking. This is no longer the church is scared and afraid, kind of, because we still know that our gate Jesus isn't going to fail us. This is, I can go out and conquer the enemy knowing that God is with me and he's never going to forsake me, and his gates will not prevail against the church. Because right before it, he said, on this rock I will build my church, meaning himself. And he says, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. We're going out against the enemy. We're not in the background prepping our grain and our canned goods, waiting for the apocalypse. We're going out with sword, and we are seizing the dragon, and we are killing the dragon. Very different concept from the same exact scripture. This was revelation for me. It blew my mind for the entire day. I went home and told my wife, and she goes, yeah, you know that? <laughs> Shut up. What do you mean? When did you, not, when did you find that out and not tell me? She just, you know, if one thing, if you have not figured this out from our ladies who have a lot more time to listen to podcasts and podcasts, and podcasts, and dare I say even more podcasts. There is so much that I just don't have time for because I'm trying to do my job and make my employer happy that I cannot podcast all day in my earbud while I'm making lunch or disciplining a child. There are just things I, I just can't take in that much information. So, as Christians, we take different posture with that scripture. We can go forth and slap the enemy in his face, knowing he has no authority over us. He will not be able to withstand because the gates of hell cannot prevail against our force. This only happens after the Logos sets in and accomplishes its goal, either through the preaching or the hearing of the word of God. Saints, he is still painting with that brush today. So, how can we finally apply all of this revelation? All those four points. We need to mobilize in our faith. There are too many Christians out there that are shouting that this world is coming to an end and some biblical prophecy is being fulfilled because Vladimir Putin has a name for this ballistic missile that is translated into the name of English man and man we know is decoded into the number of the beast which is 666 and blah blah blah. Everything is going to hell, and we're hanging on by a thin little cord. There's no hope in that. Society and culture doesn't want to hear that. They think we're already crazy for going to church every Sunday, let alone if you get together midweek. And you start coming out with crazy conspiracy theories that ballistic missiles are in the book of Revelation. It's not. Stop lying if you're saying that. It's not. There are no helicopters with scorpion sting and faces of man revelations is not talking about modern day warfare and if you don't believe me check out dr bonson's teaching on post-millennialism <laughs> and your mind will explode too if you've had some bad thoughts in there from the past so where is the hope of all that we have a revelation of god that he is good and that he loves his bride. He will protect her. He is not going to allow her to be beaten, bruised, raped, destroyed, and come in and save her in the last minute. We have hope for this world. 
That's something that they want to hear. Saints, this word is coming. This world is coming to an end, but not nearly in the time frame in which people are saying. We have a long time to go out and take dominion. So what do we do with all of this? Do we just tell people, stop saying that? Stop talking that? No, it's not good enough for that. So parents, you've got to teach your kids what the logo says. Every day you've got to teach them. Fathers, you've got to teach them. In your devotions, if you don't have time because your work schedule for your devotions and your, uh, the different things you have going on in your life, make sure you can pull your kids aside and have conversation with them about the goodness of God and what God is calling us to as his people. That's our job as parents. What about little kids? Right? What do you guys get to do? Well, first of all, don't be afraid to speak the word. I was just, I think I was just saying yesterday in men's breakfast. Uh, no, I was telling my family how much I appreciate Tom. Tom Ratliff. He's like, what are you talking about? Because during men's breakfast, he contributes conversation. And he has insight. He has real biblical insight. He didn't just get it from nowhere. Right? These two taught it to him. And the Spirit of God illuminates it to him. He understands it. And so he speaks it. That's impressive. We have 18-year-olds that don't open their mouth in men's breakfast. And I get this little guy ready to preach a sermon. <laughs> That's impressive. Speak the Word of God. Asher's, Jubilees, Ellie, Sophia's. I'm not going to go down the list and... We're just Nathan's and Olivia. Yeah, you're right there. <laughs> Speak the word of God. Speak what God says. Right now you're practicing with wooden swords. There's going to be a day where you're going to take up a real sword and you're going to go out against the enemy. You're going to go out against the dragon. Jesus was the first dragon slayer. And we are like him and so we will be under underlings, under slayers. Right? We read about this yesterday in the book. How about the young men and the young ladies? Right? People who are not quite grown up, if you would. They don't have their they don't have their house, they don't have their family, they don't have their investments or their IRAs or four oh one Ks. But they're not we ones, right? What do we do with that? with you guys. You guys are in a crucial part of your life. Things make sense at this point. Things don't make sense at this point. You guys have questions. Sometimes even hard questions. Sometimes questions that when as parents we hear these things we go, what house did you grow up in? That's okay. You should have questions. And you should be able to search the scriptures to find them out. This is the point in your life where you're, it either works or it doesn't work. Christianity is real or it's not real. This is the point you figure that out. If you go into your 20s and you haven't figured this out yet, it's going to be hard. Real, real hard. So, take some time. When you don't have a mortgage, when you don't have such great responsibilities on your neck, take some time to search the scriptures. The scriptures will speak to you and ask God to illuminate these to your heart, and they will become your scriptures. It will become your Bible, and he will become your God.
This is what you do with the word. Hebrews 4.12 says, For the word of God is living and it's active and it's sharper than any two-edged sword piercing to the division of the soul and the spirit of the joints and the marrow in the discerning of thoughts and intentions of our heart. Apply the logos to your situation in life and I guarantee he will give you the brush to paint the canvas of this world and we will stand with you in awe of what God will be doing through you to reveal himself. Let's pray. Lord, thank you once again. Thank you for this opportunity, Lord, to come before you, to learn of you, to commune with you. Lord, thank you, God, that you have called us on this festive day of rest to be with you, to be with our brothers and sisters. Lord, may this word sit in our heart, may it encourage us, Lord, today and in the days to come. We pray this, Lord, in Jesus' name.